Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 28 uh, is where we're going to be today, and we're going to learn a lot. Are you guys ready to learn? Okay, the title of the message is this, What Did You Expect of Me? What did you expect of me? Verse 28 says this, In the path of righteousness is life. Good. Okay. In the path of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. In its pathway, there is no death. I've been living in Los Angeles now for actually 15 years this month. This is my 15th year in Los Angeles. This is home for me. We're planted here. We love it here. And uh, LA continues, honestly, to grow uh, uh, I continue to grow in fondness for the city of Los Angeles and just feel so called here. When you first move to L.A., you're bound to notice a couple of things, especially if you move from the suburbs like I did. I grew up in the suburbs uh, of Atlanta, and you move to Los Angeles, and there's certain things that stick out to you right, right away. And if you had a similar experience to me in terms of what you grew up in to moving here, you probably noticed these kinds of things. Like, number one, the first time it like downpours rain in Los Angeles, you noticed that we didn't factor that in at all. When it came to city planning and the mapping out, like, we didn't even think about the fact that it might rain because all of our roads turn into rivers. This, this is the thing. Um, you know, speaking of roads, there's certain roads, especially like in the northeast part of Los Angeles, like Silver Lake, Echo Park area, you drive up some hills and it is the steepest hill you've ever been on. And you get to the top of that hill and it's so steep, there's actually no guarantee that there's another road on the other side of the mountain. Like, it's like, it's literally like a roller coaster. Here's one of the things that I noticed when I first moved to Los Angeles was how uh, common it was for people to put, like, their old dirty furniture out on, on the road. Did that shock you? Like, that really shocked me. Like, there's a whole dresser just, like, right there. <clears throat> or, or, like, their old filthy mattress. Like, who wants your old filthy mattress? Nobody wants your mattress. Like, it, it's gross. Like, don't put, no one wants to take that. <clears throat> Nicole and I, when we first got married... Um, our dining room table was a literal door. We were, we were you know, pretty poor, and so our, we didn't have enough money to buy a dining room table, so we found a door, an old, crappy door, on the side of the road, and we drilled Ikea legs into the door, and that was our dining room table. But, you know, like most doors, it had all the little indentions in it, right? And so uh, whenever you put your dinner plate on it, the dinner plate would always fall into the... Every time we'd have guests and we'd get so embarrassed, like, oh, we're, we're going to get a glass top made for it. Yeah, it's custom. It's being made. We never got a glass top made for that thing. <laughs> I wonder what life would be like if we, like, gave things away that we, like, you know, actually, you know, wanted. Like, have you ever been on the receiving end of, like, uh, hey, I don't like this jacket anymore. Do you want it? Has that, that ever happened to you? Like, uh, I'm not really into this anymore. It, it, maybe it'll look good on you. How about like, hey, I really love this jacket. Would you like this? That would be kind of an unexpected occasion because uh, our culture has not taught us to expect things like that. In fact, even deeper than that, sin and human brokenness has not taught us to expect things like that. In fact, we often actively teach one another, please lower your expectations of me. Not because we are incapable of fulfilling people's expectations, but because our culture actually promotes the message that expectation equals restriction and constraint. Maybe some of us here today have actually absorbed the belief from culture 
that the fewer expectations you have from people upon your life, the less burdened and the happier you will be. Now, unless we take from what I'm talking about that the point is we should all walk around entitled to one another's jackets, let me be really clear about what I'm saying. That sin and the, the ideal of self-authorship, that I can define who I am and, and how life operates, and in general, a secular worldview has taught us that greater happiness lies on the other side of unhitching ourselves from people's expectations of us. This is the ethos of our age. It is all about the autonomous self. We live in an atomic society that is trying its hardest to be made up of a bunch of unencumbered individuals. This stems from centuries-old thinking dating back to the Enlightenment and probably before that from thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes and Jean Locke. And Rousseau in particular is a massive influence on our modern thinking of the self in relation to wider society and the state. Nancy Piercy, one of my favorite authors, wrote in her book Total Truth, she states that Rousseau said the way to grasp the essence of human nature was to hypothesize what we would be like if we were stripped of all social relationships, morals, laws, customs, traditions, and of civilization itself. This original pre-social condition he called the state of nature. In it, all that exists are lone, disconnected, autonomous individuals whose sole motivating force is the desire for self-preservation, what Rousseau called self-love. Sounds kind of familiar. This was written in the 1700s. Social relationships, Rousseau said, are not ultimately real. Instead, they are secondary or derivative created by individual choice. Nancy Piercy continues with describing Rousseau's view of society then being that if our nature is to be autonomous individuals, then society is contrary to our nature. It is artificial, confining, and oppressive. That's why Rousseau's most influential work, The Social Contract, opens with the famous line that man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Rousseau did not mean chains of political oppression, as we might think in America. For Rousseau, the really oppressive relationships were personal ones like marriage, family, church, and the workplace. Now, we don't have to think very long and very hard before you notice the connection between these now centuries-old ideas and the demonstration of how they are working themselves out in our day. In our day, people claim the social constructs of biological gender norms and heteronormative sexuality. We embrace no-fault divorce without thinking twice. College students engage in hookup culture, uh, even though they testify that it leaves them feeling internally empty. We have declining marriage, marriage rates because marriage just seems so inhibiting, and we have a general ethos of low commitment and easy outs. The wisdom of the age is that you should cut as many ties to people's expectations of you as possible, and that life should, in fact, we don't use this language, but that life should, in fact, be comprised of social contracts that we have of one another to which we agree, and then and only then can we expect the relationship to be honored in any true sense. This is because, as uh, one thinker put it, that the basic tenet of liberalism, I didn't warn you I was going to take you guys to school today. Is this okay? I'll start preaching in like 10 minutes, okay? But this is the foundation. we got to be on the same, same place. The basic tenet of liberalism, and when this uh, thinker uses the word liberalism. They're not talking about our democratic party. They're talking about classical liberalism, which involves both our conservative party and our liberal party. 
the basic tenet of, of liberalism is that no individual can have an obligation to which he has not consented. Now that sounds like, yeah, that's the way life should work, that nobody should have an obligation to which he has or she has consented to anybody. But in this way of thinking, personal autonomy is the highest ideal. And that promotes the message that when it comes to our relationships and to our connectivity, low or no expectations are the best expectations. A quick Google search will yield some pithy quotes. Here's one I found. Low expectations is the key to happiness in life. If you expect nothing from somebody, you are never disappointed. My favorite one, don't blame people for disappointing you. Blame yourself for expecting too much from them. And supposedly in this way of approaching life is the fullness of life, is joy and happiness. Even in our own Christian context, we have imbibed this atomic individualistic ethos to varying degrees. And that shouldn't shock us. We live in the West. We swim in Western waters. And the West is informed by thinkers like Rousseau and like Hobbes and like Locke. And so we imbibe some of that, even if only to the extent that we convince ourselves that life will be just that much more enjoyable if I can offload this responsibility or that responsibility, responsibilities that stem from people's expectations upon me. That's why when life feels hard, we in the West, we are so prone to look at the responsibilities that we have and how many of them we can cut and therefore expectations that we can be rid of. And we think that will make us feel better. But I just want to ask the question, is there really life in that? Is it actually how God has designed and created you to be most fulfilled? Because when I hear Rousseau, I hear the opposite of Scripture. To believe that our true nature is to be autonomous individuals and that therefore society is contrary to our nature, artificial, confining, and oppressive, is to believe then by logical conclusion that the church is artificial and oppressive and contrary to our nature. After all, the church is the society of God. The church, as the Apostle Peter says in the New Testament, is God's holy nation. And experiencing this might be, it might be, uh, it might be the opposite of, of what, well, let me say it like this. Our, our unredeemed self and our sinful self certainly would find the church contrary to our nature. But the Bible says that when you became a Christian, you got born again. You got made into a new creation. And as that reborn new creation, this became the most natural, the most healthy thing to which you could belong. Because you became a part among a whole made up of many parts who were connected together. The answer, by the way, to this <clears throat> ethos of individualism is not to just flip-flop and think totally in terms of group identity. Ironically, Rousseau's prescribed agent to free the individual from the oppression of society was the state. That's what Rousseau thought would uh, bring about the end that he wanted. The state would abolish all social ties and obligations, releasing the individual from loyalty to anything except themselves. He spelled out his vision with startling clarity. Each citizen would then be completely independent of all his fellow men and absolutely dependent upon the state. And his concluded methodology actually follows logically from his desired end. The cleanest way for every individual to be free from any and all social imposition is for there to be an authoritarian state to enforce the abolition of those impositions. But it turns out that the cleanest way in Rousseau's mind would also be historically the bloodiest way. 
as Nancy Piercy points out, that his ideologies inspired Robespierre and the French Revolution, as well as Marx, Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, and Mao. Even Pol Pot, who massacred a quarter of the population in Cambodia, was educated in Paris and read his Rousseau. And thinking in terms of group identity was a feature of all of their political thoughts. So group identity is not the answer to an overly individualistic culture. The answer is the Bible. The answer is in the scriptures. What the scriptures teach is that we are all individually made in the image of God. And therefore we are all uniquely important and valuable to God. Yet at the same time, God said in Genesis that it is not good for man to be alone. And so God made a woman for man and he instituted the idea of marriage so that man and woman would procreate and raise children. Or how about in Paul's description of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So each member is placed in the body by God. Each has God given gifts to contribute to the well-being of the whole. But every individual is to see themselves as inseparably a part of that whole. And in in these two examples, what the scriptures set forth is that in the Old Testament, individuals are not the basic building block of society, but families are the basic building block of society. And in the New Testament, that individuals are not the ultimate expression of Christianity, but the church is the ultimate expression of Christianity. And all of this stems from in the beginning God, let us make man in our image, that we serve a Trinitarian God, that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And God is the only eternal existent reality, which means that community is an eternal existent reality, which tells us that individuals are not just ultimate reality, but relationship is ultimate reality as well. And that informs the way that we go about living our lives. Now, what does all of that have to do with the path of righteousness, as Proverbs 12, 28 talks about? It has everything to do with the path of righteousness because when we understand what biblical righteousness is, we can experience what the Bible calls life. The kind of life that is the longing for all of us who have believed the lie that greater happiness and greater enjoyment is just around the corner from a low expectation experience. So let's look again at our scripture, Proverbs 12, 28. In the path of righteousness is life. Everybody say life. And in that pathway, there is no death. Now this proverb is saying two things, not one. When it talks about life, that word there is speaking of like temporal blessing, like your own life being enriched by God's blessing upon your life while you live. The general principle is that if we live righteously, then the actual experiences of our lives will be marked by greater enjoyment, richer relationships, greater opportunities, in contrast if we lived unrighteously. When it says that in that same path there is no death, that is not simply a restatement of the first uh, stanza, of the first sentence. It's actually saying uh, that in the path of righteousness, there is not just temporal blessing, but there is eternal life. And certainly we are safe to understand the scripture that way because in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we receive the righteousness that brings us into eternal life. So in the path of righteousness is a blessed life and an eternal life. Let me say it this way, that when you, when you walk down the path of righteousness, you never hit a dead end. There is no end to that road. There'll be ups, there'll be downs, there'll be difficult times, there'll be really great times. But it's, it's never going to end. That is, you just keep walking along that path and you experience what God has for you. 
So if in the path of righteousness there is life, the kind of life that we all crave, then we should probably ask this question, what is righteousness? And a lot of us could probably give like a loose definition of what righteousness is. Maybe we'd say it's, you know, some, some kind of moral ideal, moral perfection. Maybe it's right living. Maybe we'd use a synonym like holiness or something like that. And we would be, you know, correct. We'd be in the right camp in terms of trying to define and describe what righteousness is. For those of us who are here who know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know that apart from Christ, righteousness is not possible, that only when we are in Christ can we truly be made righteous. And we would be right and biblical in saying that. And this kind of righteousness, being in Christ, it's a matter of faith. It's confession of the mouth and it's belief in the heart, as Paul says in Romans. But it's, it's also allegiance. That Greek word, pistis, that gets translated into faith can also be translated into allegiance because righteousness comes not just uh, by thinking a thought. It's actually living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's got to be a real relationship uh, that we have with him. And so in that way, we would say that it's not just faith, it's also faithfulness. And that the sincerity of my confession of faith should be something that brings the conduct of my life into alignment with that confession of faith. So that I'm not just saying a statement, I'm actually living my life in accordance with what it is that I have said. So, so yes, faith in Christ is the only way into righteousness. And we understand that this faith is faithfulness. It's loyal love to and for the Lord. And faithfulness is the best word that I can think of to describe a righteous life. Deep faithfulness to God, living faithfully to God and living faithfully to one another. In other words, righteousness cannot be understood apart from the context of our relationships. Which means that God's righteousness is exactly the opposite experience of what our culture teaches us to liberate ourselves from expectations. Because you cannot have true relationship, not with God and not with one another, without expectation coming part and parcel with that experience. This is how the Bible defines righteousness. Think about the very concept of righteousness itself is grounded in God. God is the only purely, perfectly righteous one. And part of God's righteousness is that he always does what is right. Part of God always doing what is right is that he always does what he says he is going to do. And if God always does what he says he is going to do, that means he always acts in accordance with how he teaches us to expect him to act. God, in speaking of his own righteousness in Malachi 3, says, I, the Lord, do not change. God always does what he says he's going to do. And he actually teaches us to have the hope of expectation in his character. Now, if you're wrestling with what I'm saying about righteousness today, I want to turn your attention to the Baker Bible Encyclopedia, how it defines righteousness from a biblical standpoint. It is conformity to a certain set of expectations which vary from role to role. Righteousness is fulfillment of the expectations in any relationship, whether with God or other people. Okay, so this is what righteousness meant to an ancient Israelite. It means that people act the way that others expect them to act. And those expectations were not the invention of their own mind. It was biblically informed. Because Israel was a society with God and the scriptures at the center. So they were expecting one another to live in a way that their own scriptures told and taught them to live. And when they did that, then they were considered righteous people. The Hebrew word was Sadiq. 
And a Sadiq was a person of wisdom whose righteousness brought joy to his family, city, and to the people of God. It is righteousness understood in the context of relationship, which means that you cannot have Rousseau and righteousness. You cannot have the current Western way of thinking of being an autonomous self, and that is your highest ideal, and be a biblically righteous person. You can't have total unencumbered autonomy and live a righteous life. You can't pursue greater righteousness and fewer expectations at the same time. You can't be a rolling stone, tumbleweed, just doing my own thing kind of Christian and still be faithful to Jesus at the same time. Because to be faithful, to act righteously towards God and others is to actually embrace, not shun, but to embrace and fulfill the expectations that they have of me. Expectations that are informed first by Scripture and second by what we ourselves have committed to doing. All of a sudden, the golden rule that Jesus puts forth in the Sermon on the Mount makes a whole lot more sense to me that we would, uh, whatever we wish others would do to us, we would do to them. Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. In other words, that's the heartbeat of the Old Testament. And he says this as a summarizing statement of all that he's taught so far in the Sermon on the Mount about living a righteous life. Now what more do we each wish that others would do to us other than what we just expect them to do? That each of us would submit ourselves to the, the will of God, that we would yoke ourselves to Jesus Christ, and therefore that we would live in a way that promotes the unity and the edification of the whole to which we belong. And I don't find it to be any coincidence whatsoever that the next words out of Jesus' mouth after teaching them the golden rule is this, that you are to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That sounds like our proverb. And those who find it are few. Because it's easy to run from the expectations that come from our relationship to the Lord that come from our relationships in the church, even that come from our relationships in the world. But to run from expectation, what the Bible wants to put before us today is that to run from expectation is actually going to lead you to destruction. But to actually embrace the relational expectations that are supposed to put upon us, that is what is going to lead us to life. In the path of righteousness, that is in the path of committing to fulfilling biblically informed expectations, that's where you're going to find the life that you want. That means that if in righteousness is the path to life, that you and I, rather than throwing off people's expectations of us as oppressive and inhibiting or even as just kind of inconvenient and to be avoided whenever possible, actually we as believers in the Lord Jesus, we should acknowledge that the presence of healthy biblically informed expectations upon us and our commitment to fulfill those is what leads to a truly satisfying life. This is the power of righteousness, that if you and I would commit to being righteous 
people, in other words, living in accordance with the identity that we've already been given, that Jesus Christ has already made us righteous. He's already made you right with God. He's already built you into the body of Christ so that you stand shoulder to shoulder with your siblings beneath your heavenly Father, serving and worshiping Him together. And with those relationships, just quite frankly, comes a certain expectation that I'm not going to stab you in the back and you're not going to stab me in the back. And that we're going to live for God like our mouths say we're going to live for God. It's just, it's part and parcel with living the kind of life that we actually all want one another to live. And what happens is that when we understand righteousness this way, rather than seeking for experiences and other people and, and maybe things to provide fulfillment for us, actually what happens is we understand that the only way I really get fulfilled is when I stop expecting so much of you or so much of that thing and I rather embrace the expectations that you have of me and I commit myself to fulfilling those expectations, contributing to the joy of the society that I'm in, whether that's the church, my family, or my workplace. And this is what makes the church such a powerful counter force to the culture that we are actually living in, that we submit to a totally different social structure than the world. One where we don't run from expectation, but we actually embrace. One where we actually desire to fulfill expectation. And desire is the most important word there. That you and I would actually become people who desire to have expectations upon us and to fulfill them. Because only when we desire to fulfill expectations do they actually produce life in us. We might do the things that people expect us to do, but if we do them out of duty instead of desire, then there's probably an expiration date to our willingness to live up to those expectations. But serving God, just go with me, serving God and serving other people is not meant to have an expiration date attached to it. It's meant to be an ongoing way of life. And I think the, the real key here is in a scripture in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. This one verse could change your entire life. It says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus, after his resurrection, he ascends to the Father and he offers his own blood as an offering for our sin. How much more will the blood of Christ do what? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you let that scripture really sink into your mind, it will change the entire way you live. That the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience from doing dead things to actually serve the living God. Because the blood of Jesus, when it has its full effect, it cleanses us not just on the surface, but down to the very level of our conscience. Have you ever been walking around with a guilty conscience? Do you ever have those moments where you're reminded of the mess you made, the mistakes that you, that you made, and so your conscience becomes, uh, it becomes marred, and so you start actually living out of a place of an unclean conscience. And the reason that you do the good thing is not just to do, do the good thing, it's so that you can feel better about the bad thing that's, being, that's coming up with you in your conscience. And Jesus actually wants to set you free from that so that his blood could cleanse you, not just on the surface, but down to the level of your conscience so that you would actually live as a person who is set free from your sin. That will actually change your life right there. 
And this is why the blood of Jesus actually liberates us from dead works. What's a dead work? A dead work is a good work done for the sake of saving face instead of serving God. And saving face is what you do when you're trying to get God to accept you and people to respect you. And so you actually work, you do good things to those ends. And it's a constant effort to get out of the red and into the black. And so it's never actually genuine servanthood because it's work. Which is why you can't save face and serve God at the same time. And the only way you're going to stop living your life going around in circles, just keep on trying to save face, is if you actually get the revelation that the blood of Jesus has cleansed you so deeply from sin that it's not just people's perspective of you, it's your own understanding of yourself because it reaches down to the level of your conscience. When you understand that the blood of Jesus has made you righteous and so now you are accepted, say it with me, say, I am accepted. When that becomes the revelation by which you live, then you can stop doing dead works and start doing actual good works. And the difference between a dead work and a good work is that I don't do it for me. I genuinely do it to worship God and to build others up. And the only way that you can actually live your life in a way, in a manner that is for others and not for self is if you get good on the inside. And the only way you're getting good on the inside is if you let him do the cleaning instead of you. And he is all-powerful and almighty to do that in your life. Your actions are truly for the pursuit of building up others and worshiping the Lord. And here's the catch. When When you genuinely serve... And you embrace the fact that I'm in, I'm in real relationship and that comes with expectation. And when you fulfill those expectations, not as a strategy to feel better about yourself, but to truly worship God and to serve others. When you do that, then something really transformational happens in you. And it becomes life-giving to you. But I wasn't doing it for me. I know. You were doing it for God. You were doing it for others. But here's the, pe- here's the message of the kingdom. When you stop doing it for you, God will make it beneficial for you. That's the blessing of the kingdom of God. Is that God wants to get you out of concern about yourself. He wants to get you into a place where you're like, wow, I'm good with God. What an amazing place to be. To be good with God. Friends, if you are good with God, that is the starting line from which you can run the most magnificent race If you are not good with God, you'll just be digging into the dirt, a ditch deeper and deeper and deeper, and you'll constantly feel the need to climb out of it, but you can't. So God wants to make you good with him. And he does that through the free gift of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. If your good works are about feeling better about yourself, not only is the work dead, but it leaves you feeling dead. Because you know the work is is not enough to make up for all of your imperfections. And so what happens is the cycle of sin just continues. And Jesus wants to liberate you from that. God has something so much better for you than that. Something so much more fruitful that you would live under his grace. Which actually produces the desire to serve him. And that is the goal. When you look at the scripture, Jesus cleanses our conscience so that we can stop doing dead works. And then not just do nothing. What is this? So that you can serve the living God. And to serve the living God is to live in accordance with how he says, hey, here's how I want you to live. It's to fulfill biblically informed expectations that exist upon our relationship with him 
and upon our relationship with one another so that we can act in a way that is in accordance with being his children and one another's siblings. And in that is life. There is no life in thinking of yourself solely as just your own person, doing your own thing. I know that's the message that we get taught by the culture, but it actually doesn't lead to flourishing at all. It leads into isolation and emptiness. It leads you into a place of just kind of spinning your wheels. And ultimately, it's, it's led me before into frustration. <clears throat> and one of the reasons that we get into that thing is because uh, we get frustrated with other people not fulfilling the expectations that we have of them. <clears throat> One of the disasters of this message would be that if we took away from it the idea of, oh yeah, this person's not doing what I expect them to do. <laughs> you would have missed the point. You should take away from it, am I doing what they expect of me? Let me just give you three practical takeaways and then I'll wrap this bad boy up. Number one, clarify expectations. The only way you're going to fulfill them is if you know them. And those expectations, by the way, should not be the inventions of our own thinking. I don't get to expect of you whatever I want. Some of you, that's like your modus operandi in relationships, and that's why your relationships like, keep going south. Because <laughs> you think you can just expect of them whatever you want. Don't do that. Expect what the Bible teaches you to expect. And allow them to expect of you what the Bible teaches them to expect. And then actually have conversation with one another and be clear about like, what the expectations are in, in that relationship. I know this sounds mechanical, but this is where like, life actually starts to flourish. So many of us just live our lives in this like, painful ambiguity where like, I actually don't know what they want from me. I'm actually not even clear if I know what I want from them. This sounds crazy, but biblically informed expectations come from the Bible. So you've got to study it. Particularly Paul's epistles, his letters in the New Testament, that'll teach you how to live in the church, man. Like, read 1 Corinthians. Like, man, they were messed up. You, we can figure this thing out. Like, here, here would be one, for just in a general sense, I expect every, every person who belongs to this church, I expect them to believe the gospel. There's just like a real good starting line right there. That you are saved by grace and through faith, and so you get out of this place of constantly having to earn it. Because we will only, as a church, will only be as healthy as our revelation of the gospel goes deep. If the revelation of the gospel does not go deep in us, then we will get involved, but for the wrong reasons. We'll serve, but for the wrong reasons. So you need to take a scripture like Hebrews 9.14 and just like let that wash over you. The blood of Jesus purifies not just the outside, but, but your conscience. Like I expect us to take seriously the, the price that Jesus paid so that his work really does have that effect on us. Because when his work has that effect on a group of people who follow him, I'm telling you, church, we'll be unstoppable. Like there's absolutely no limit to where we can go and what we can accomplish if our starting point is, is the black, not the red.
And only Jesus can get us there. I shouldn't just have these expectations of you. We should have these expectations of one another. Because we're, we're a body. And we're intertwined and interconnected with one another. And everything that God expects of you, by the way, is tied to what he wants for you, not from you. <clears throat> so if I'm going to have expectation of you and you're going to have expectation of one another, it's connected to what we want for each other. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to keep spinning my wheels. And if I'm doing that, and if I'm, if I'm living in this legalistic way where I'm just constantly trying to earn God's acceptance and earn your respect, I hope that Joe will be like, yo, Jake, we got to talk, man. Something's got to change. Because it's not going to be healthy. And we're not going to go anywhere. But we're called to go somewhere. So we've got to embrace these expectations. I expect us uh, to actually have a relationship with the Lord. Uh, Joe shared with... Um, with the team this morning, that in America over the last two years, one out of every five churches is shut down because of the pandemic. There's a multiplicity of reasons for that. One of the most common things that I hear from the pastors that I talk to time and time and time again is that discipleship was, it just wasn't as deep as we thought. And so we're, the gathering is an irreplaceable thing. Um, but when the gathering gets taken away, you better hope that we all have some depth to our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And what we are finding is that there's maybe not as much depth there as we hoped there was. And so people are, you know, falling away. And even today, most churches that I know of in America are operating about 50% of the capacity they were before COVID hit. There's various reasons for that, people's moving and, and, and stuff like that. But we ought to take seriously the fact that every single one of us is a disciple of Jesus. And so as your pastor, I actually expect you to have a relationship with the Lord. I can't have one with him for you. You have to have it. And that relationship should involve the same kinds of spiritual disciplines that Jesus himself practiced. Prayer, solitude, fasting. By the way, you don't need me to call a church-wide fast for, to fast. You can, you can just do it. I know it's crazy. It's wild. S studying the scriptures. Tithing. Jesus was a faithful Jew. You better believe he tithed. Just self, the, the disciplines that came along with living faithfully to God that you see in the scriptures and the life of Jesus, start doing those. I expect you to. And the people in your neighborhood group, they should expect you to, and you should expect them to. Because then we're bringing healthy selves to the whole instead of constantly hoping that one another can provide the fulfillment. No, no, don't do that. What do they expect of me? Rise to that. It'd be very Rousseau to minimize expectation. That's not Scripture. Scripture is God's made you for more. Scripture is God has more for you. And so we rise to that expectation. This is practical, but I'm believing it's so helpful for us today. Uh, number two, let me just say this. Run to responsibility. So when we actually understand what righteousness is, what happens is that when we fulfill righteousness, it becomes the fabric that knits the community together. Let me say it this way. We go from thinking that righteousness is about our own personal holiness, and actually righteousness becomes the thing that knits us together as a family of faith because it's living up to expectation. And therefore, unrighteousness is the breaking of trust. It's not doing what's expected of us, and that actually deteriorates a community. So... When you start to learn, like a lot of us get into relationship, and relationships at the beginning are like, oh, wow, this is fun, a new friend. <laughs> and when you make new friends, it just feels like there's very low expectation. 
But as the relationship grows, it's kind of like, oh, this person actually expects something from me. <clears throat> That's the moment where a lot of us, like, in our hearts, we're just like, close the door. <laughs> or maybe we're like, ah, I'm going to come to church like once a month instead of every week, just to create some distance here, right? Like, oh, maybe I'll go to neighborhood group this week, but maybe I won't go to neighborhood group this week. We start to create some space. We run from the responsibility of relationship. Don't do that. Run towards responsibility. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8 says that wisdom walks in the path of righteousness. So evidently, if you and I are walking down the path of righteousness, we're going to find our old buddy wisdom there too. That's where wisdom hangs out. And you know what the Proverbs says is that wisdom has built her house. The reason wisdom has built her house is because wisdom hangs out with righteousness and righteousness runs towards responsibility, which means that wisdom builds instead of neglects. It contributes instead of robs. So when you feel the responsibility of expectation, the responsibility of relationship, don't run away from it, run towards it. Number three, and I'm all done, be the body of Christ. You, like you do it. Don't just keep expecting me to be the body of Christ. If I'm going to be the body of myself, it's going to be one ill-equipped, malnourished body. Ugly too. But if we be the body together, which requires every single one of us to have our own revelation, to plant ourselves, to play our part. Like, like I said, don't let your response be to think of all the things that, that you expect of others. Let your response be like, I wonder what they expect of me and what's biblical. And then commit yourself to fulfilling that. One more proverb. It says um, in 1434, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Remember what I said before about what the New Testament describes the church as, as God's holy nation. And righteousness is what exalts any nation. The same is true of the church, that righteousness, that is running to the responsibility of fulfilling biblically informed expectations, that's what actually builds the church. That's what will exalt the church to higher places of stature, influence in the community that she's planted. Some of us here at C3LA in the South Bay, maybe in Highland Park, some of us here, we've been and this is actually because we care so much about this church and we, we actually so desire her flourishing. Asking the question, what do we need to do to get from where we are and to grow from where we are to the place that we know we have the potential to go? And I tell you, the answer to the question is latent in every single one of us. God's actually planted it in every single one of us. And it's, it's the willingness to resist the culture of autonomy it's the willingness to resist the culture of easy in, easy out, let relationships go when they get too hard. Resist that. I think the Bible would call that resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a demonic way of thinking about relationship, by the way. It has nothing to do with Christ. So resist that and instead embrace what the Bible talks about when it comes to the church. Embrace the responsibility of relationship. Because when we show up for one another, we're showing up for the whole. And when you show up, you bring tools that I don't have so we can build in a way that we couldn't build before. But if you don't bring yourself, then we don't have the tools and we're just going to be working on the same old house. So you got to say, well, what has God put in me that he expects me to bring to the party? This is the way a healthy body works. When I'm going to go for a run, my brain expects my limbs to respond. 
When I begin to run, my legs expect my lungs to start breathing and my heart to start pumping oxygen through my blood. And responding to that kind of expectation in a church is what a true culture of grace is about. Grace is not just about, and here's, it's not just about getting into the black. It's not just God's forgiveness. Grace is God's supernatural empowerment upon your life to take you places that you never could have gone on your own and to accomplish things that you never could have done on your own. So that like Ephesians 3 says, more than you could ever ask or think according to His power at work in us. And friends, His power is present in our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not living by your own power. You're not that good. You're living by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and He wants to take us as a church into realm that we never could have gone on our own. And that's why God spoke to me this last year. A grace culture is a growth culture. But grace is about having healthy expectation of one another. God's made us for more. You've heard of Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations. We need to have grace expectations. Touch your neighbor, tell them grace expectation. Touch your other neighbor, tell them grace expectation. We're going to have these kinds of expectations of one another. And when we commit to fulfilling them, guess what? We're blessed. Because in the path of righteousness, in the path of, you've got to walk down this path, you're going to find life. Your life's going to be more blessed. You're going to have a richer relationship. Your life will have meaning and purpose. The enlightenment has contributed a whole lot of great to our society. Overall, glad it happened but it also contributed a whole lot of bad and a whole bunch of non-biblical thinking. And what happens is, as Christians, when we abdicate our responsibility to think, then we just imbibe the mantra of culture and we just go along with the way culture does things. But you cannot get a biblical outcome with worldly input. If you want a biblical outcome, you've got to have biblical input. This is like my thing for the year. This is how you need to live your life. Get Fox News, get CNN, whatever it is, just get it out of there. And get this puppy right here in front of your eyes and start living this way, and we're gonna be all right. I said, we're gonna be all right. Why don't you stand to your feet? You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.